Hi, I'm Andalisi, and this is Essential Conversations. Well, in this episode, I talk with Motown legend Barrett Strong. I interviewed him when he was turning 75 years old, and when we sat down to talk about the early days of Motown, he recounted stories about how songs like Money and I Heard It Through the Grapevine were created, as well as working with writer and producer Norman Whitfield. He also talked about writing songs for The Temptations and the inner workings of Motown Records. So I want to go back and talk about your early life. So you were not born in Detroit, but you certainly ended up here, and we act like you belong to us here in Detroit. Do you remember when you got here? How old were you? I was four years old. I remember a lot. Tell I me what I you came were... on a train from Mississippi to Detroit. I stopped in St. Louis for a couple of years. Then I came up from St. Louis to Detroit. And what was Detroit like when you got here? Very nice place. Everybody was talking about the segregation, but I never experienced it. I met some very nice people. I lived in the neighborhood not too far from here. So when did you know that music was going to be a big part of your life? The first day my father bought, a, bought an old piano and brought it to the house and put me on his knee and say, and he started playing it. And I jumped down and ran around the back to see where the sound was coming from. And he couldn't play, but I knew then I wanted to. So I, I sat there, I sat on his knee every day and played with him. So did you teach yourself? Did anybody teach you or did you teach yourself how to play? I taught myself. Were you at a point where you could listen to something on the radio and then you could play it? Right. I, then I could make up my own little things. I started playing on the black keys or the flats and sharps. I started there. And when Christmas night, I wasn't into Christmas too much. Well, I came up from church and I started playing on the, the major keys. I played White Christmas. And everybody walked up again and I said, Oh, you can play the piano. <laughs> and then from then on, I just. Then I started playing gospel, and my sisters and I, we had a group call ourselves the Strong Singers. We'd go from church to church and sing and play. And then we met Aretha Franklin and her family, and uh, we they used to come to the house. We'd sit down and play. We knew Jackie Wilson, all the big stars, Sam Cooke. After they come to Detroit and do a show, they would come by, and I'd play the piano. We'd just have a Jamboree there at the house. So you would hang out with Aretha Franklin and Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson. Talk about Jackie Wilson for a second. He was a great guy. He's the one that introduced me to Barry Gordy. How old were you when you met Barry Gordy? Fourteen. And at that point, were you writing your own songs by that time? Yes. I was imitating Ray Charles. I was singing and playing like Ray Charles and bobbing and doing my head and stomping my feet the way he would do. singing Drowning My Own Tears and all the other songs that he used to do back in the day. What I say and stuff, Drowning My Own Tears is the song that I auditioned to for to Barry Gordy with. Did Barry Gordy ask you to audition for him, or did you say to him, I want to talk to you, I want, I'm a musician, I want you to hear what I can do? Now, Jackie Wilson told me that he was going to bring him over to the house because he wanted him to hear me, because Barry was writing for Jackie Wilson at the time. Mm-hmm. So he brought him to the house, and I played for him. He said, I really like you. I think you're good. You can be a star. And uh, he said, come to my house. And he lived not far from here, Hague off of Woodward. Mm-hmm. And I walked there. They were building the, the John Lodge Freeway. Right. And I walked across the freeway. I walked over to his house in audition room. He was lying on the couch, getting ready to go to, getting ready to, go to work. And I played John and Mount Tears ago, and he said, you're good, boy. So Motown wasn't. He, Motown Records wasn't happening at that point, right? There was no right? Motown. 
No town. There was no town at that time. So you met Barry Gordy, you auditioned for him. Motown Records hadn't happened yet. So what happened to your relationship after he basically told you he thought you were really good? Then you parted ways? What happened after that? I was playing with a little band around town, playing all the little parties and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I went to Fortune Records. That was the only record company in the city at the time. And he told me, say, you have no talent. (laughs) When you went to Fortune? Yeah. And he said, you have no talent. We don't want to sign you. So I kept playing with this band, and uh, which consisted of Billy Davis, the guitar player, Billy Davis, and some other friends of mine were going to Central High School. And then I just kept working and working at the plan, and you know, come up with little, little ideas. So I was still thinking I was Ray Charles. Because you didn't write and read music, when you would have ideas, how would you save your thoughts and your musical ideas? Did you just remember them? Remember, yes, what they call the brain. So you would have all these ideas and you would just remember them? Yeah, I would just remember them. Fortune Records tells you that you don't have any talent and they don't want to sign you. And how long after that did Barry Gordy launch Motown Records? After we did, uh, I did a song called Let's Rock. The other side was called Do the Very Best You Can. We recorded it. WGLB had a studio on Alexandrine. I recorded it there. Do you remember that recording session? Yes. How long did it take you to record those two songs? Not very long because I would jump right to it. (laughs) Once I would hear it, I would jump right to it. (laughs) I would go. (laughs) It's like a race. The bell would ding, horses take off. I was gone. Let's rock. Come on and move your feet, my baby. I was doing it. And uh, the band, little band in the studio, like the studio here, we would record it. Very intimate little studio. Do you remember hearing yourself back for the first time when you heard yeah. those songs? What did you think when you heard yourself? I thought it was the greatest thing ever came <laughs> along. I thought it was the greatest thing since Bubblegum. <laughs> and so now you have these two songs, and what did you do with them? Because there was no Motown yet, and there was no... Fortune Records didn't want to sign you. So what did you do once you had these songs recorded? What happened with those songs? Well, they stayed in the, what they call it, back in the day, they called putting them in the can. And, and that's where they stayed for a long time. Let's fast forward to when Barry Gordy decides to sign you to Motown Records. I, I'm sure that you had heard it when it happened that he had a record company. Did you go back to him and say, remember me? You thought I was great. Are you going to sign me? No, I never said the, the thing. I know I was never signed to Motown. I was signed to Mr. to Barry Gordy as a, he was a manager. I never I was never a Motown artist. I worked for Joe Ben Music, which is the publisher. So that's who was responsible for your music. Yes, for songwriting. But I was a, I was just an, I was um he was my manager. Motown came later. So what did Barry Gordy do for you then before Motown as your manager? Actually. To be honest with you, really nothing. But you were young. I was young. And you didn't, probably at that point, didn't know what he should have been doing for you, right? Right. My parents, they were, my father was a farmer from Mississippi. He didn't know anything about the music business, so he didn't know what to ask for. All right, so let's fast forward to the recording of Money, Motown Records' first big hit. But you weren't on the label. No, but when I, when we came, when I, I was sitting in the studio he just got the bill in for the studio, and uh, 
We didn't know what to what to call it. We didn't know whether to call it Motown or what. We didn't know whether they wanted to build a studio or a record company. Right. So I'm sitting there playing the piano. I was playing Ray Charles' song, What Does Say? And then I started messing with the keys, playing the hook for money. Dun, 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 dun. And Robert Bateman, who's the engineer at the time, said, he ran and said, Barry, can we listen to what he's playing? Barry said, let's get a song. And, and uh, I kept playing it. Then we recorded the track because back then we could we could overdub, but all this new stuff technology was going on now that wasn't going on then. So we started jotting down lyrics, and so I just started singing the hook and playing because I was still thinking Ray Charles in the back of my mind. You sang the hook. Yeah, that was you. So you came up with the riff for the piano riff, and you came up with the hook. Right. Who ended up writing with you to finish the rest? Barry Gordy and Janie Bradford. So it was the three of you? Yes. Did Barry Gordy at any point in time suggest somebody else recording it, or did he want you to record that song? Me, because I had I had the groove. I had it together. Nobody else could do it. When it came time to record the song, who was in the studio with you? Robert Bateman, who, who was the engineer, the only engineer at the time. And Barry Gordy was there when you recorded it? Yes. Do you remember how many takes it took? Took a hundred. Really? Uh, really. And Ronnie White of the Miracles was there. He played on it or he watched? He was just he was just in the you know, people walking around listening. Was Smokey there? No, Smokey wasn't around. Oh. I knew Smokey from years before I went to Met Dairy. We were doing amateur shows. He used to do amateur shows in Detroit. Did you like him? Who? Smokey. Yeah, I loved him. He seems like a really nice guy. He was, yeah. He lived across the street from my uncle. My uncle, you know, was a little kid running around knew him. Did you recognize his talent early on? Did you think he was going to be as great as he ended up becoming? Yeah, he was always a professional-minded kid mm-hmm. running around. We used to all do amateur shows together. Wouldn't he call himself the Chimes mm-hmm. and some other names? So Money Gets Recorded, and it's now a song. And does Barry Gordy say, I want to put this song out on his label? How did no, that work? Well, what happened was, it was just jockey in Detroit named Comes with the Ugly Duckling. And he came by the studio one day and he heard it. It was on a quarter-inch tape. He heard it. He said, I like this. He said, Barry, can I go take it to the studio and play it? And Barry said, no. But he took it anyway and went to the studio and played it on the radio. And the phones lit up. And he, he couldn't stop playing it because people kept, kept calling us and playing it some more. And then it, then it caught on. WCHB started playing it. And so then Barry had to let it go then. But at the time, he was having trouble collecting his money from the distributors. So he had to, you know, figure out how he's going to get it out to pay for all of it. So then the record caught on. Then he finally, so then he went to his sister's, his sister had a label called Anna Records, Mm -hmm. which was distributed by Chess. And so he's put it out on her label nationally. And it caught on all over the country. Let's talk about how you felt when you realized that that was one of the biggest songs on the radio in the country. Were you surprised? Not really, because I knew that it was a hit. I, I knew the groove was there and the hook was there. Because the main thing about records and music is the hook. If you have a hook, you don't have anything. You gotta have some people, gotta, people can remember. If you forget the song as soon as you hear it, there's no hit. Instead of having a good song, I'd rather have a Hit song. 
<laughs> I could see that. So after this song became a hit, you must have been confident and excited to continue writing music. It came later, after I left and moved to Chicago. So after the song became a hit, you, you moved? I moved you left to Chicago, Detroit. yes. How come? I went to VJ Records. They wanted to sign you? Yeah, I signed with VJ. I wrote for the Dells, wrote Stand My Corner for the Dells. Mm-hmm. Then I went to CBS, to OK Records. I worked there with uh, Carl Davis, Major Lance, people like that. When they asked you to come, when you went to VJ and then you went on to other labels, did they want to hire you as a songwriter or did they want to hire you as an artist? Well, I first went to Atlantic as an artist with Doc Thomas and Mark Schumann. You know, they're, they're, they're the guys that had the drifters. They were the roof of the drifters and Elvis Presley. They became my manager and my producer. Did you like working with them? I loved it. Doc Thomas was a great man. What did he do for you that you liked? What what influence did he have on he you? He told me about career? the business, how a lot of things work, and did, he taught me what to do and what not to do. Did he protect you as an artist? Yes. He warned me about all the shenanigans that was going on in he the did. music business now, and how to avoid it. It sounds like he gave you good advice. He did. And I, I was good friends with Phil Spector, and he would, I would always talk to him. Walking up and down Broadway in New York City. Well, now I have to ask you about Phil Spector because, well, he's had a very colorful life, right? Yeah, Phil knows all the tricks of the trade. (laughs) (laughs) Was he as strange as he appears that he might have been? Very strange. He used to, when we saw him down Broadway, he'd have his guitar on his shoulder, drinking him a scotch. I said, You can't do that, man. He said, Why not? I bought it. Did you like the way he produced music? I loved it. Did you ever get to work with him in the studio that way? No, but I, I got to know him very well, just being the one who was working with the Ronettes. Who else did you start to look up to at that time who had an influence on you, on your career, and on how you looked at music? Richie Berry. He was producing a lot of the people on Scepter Records, the Shirelles on a lot of different artists. As a matter of fact, the Shirelles... That wouldn't have been a Supremes for the Shirelles and, and all the Ronettes and all those artists. If it wasn't for him? Right. So he figured out what the girl group sound could be right. and how successful it could be? Right. What did you think of that sound? Listening to these girl groups, what did you think of them? I thought it was really good. Really nice guy. He taught me a lot of tricks of the trade, too. Let's talk about how you made it back to Detroit. After you were in Chicago and you were with these other labels, and it sounds like you had some great experiences meeting some wonderful people in the music business. Right, Joe Simon. I was walking down Michigan and they weren't doing the idea. Came to me for a song. I said, I have, I would hear people always say, I heard it through the grapevine. I said, nobody ever wrote a song about that. So I went back to the, I went back to the office and sat down and started playing the bass line, I said, I got some here. Seeing where I felt when I came up with money. I said, I knew this was a hit, the subject and everything. You know, that is such an incredible song, and it's a legendary song. It will seems that it will stand the test of time. And you thought of that when you were walking down the street. See, it came, the, the whole thing came from the soldiers. The black soldiers were riding one day. They were down south, and they said, the Confederates are coming. He said, how do you know? The guy said, I heard through the grapevine. That's what 
that that's where the hook came from. So when you sat down to write this song, how long did it take you to write the entire song? Not very long, because I came when first I got the hook from that. Don't, don't, don't. So I had to put a melody to that. That's the melody there. I heard it through the grapevine. That's the melody. So I put the melody on that. So I had that already. So I said, well, all I got to do now is come up with a, the first verse. Think of what I'm going to write about. So then that's what you got to. I got to think about some of this reality to every, everybody can relate to. And so then then it started flowing. So when I came back to Detroit, I had this little cocker spaniel puppy. They said, you can't bring this dog on the train. I found me a box, put the puppy in the box and covered him with a with a towel and come up to Detroit on the train with my puppy and my cook. <laughs> so you come back to Detroit, you have this, you have your puppy and one of the most incredible songs ever written, and you land back here in the Motor City. I ran into my friend Norman Whitfield, which I had known since 1957. So you got, you guys were friends. We were friends. He was he had had a, some success with the Temps before, and then had a couple of other records with the Velvetettes, and so we got together and talked. And some of these I showed it to him. He said, "I love that. Let's cut that." And we went in the studio and got the Funk Brothers together and, and got the track together and I wrote the lyrics to it. At first we did it on the Isley Brothers, then we did it on Smoking and Miracles, but the company didn't want to do anything with it, so we found Guy Gladys Knight, which I'd known her for years. I met her in Atlanta. We used to do shows together when we were kids. And then Marvin Gaye, of course, recorded it as well. But So my understanding is is that Smokey recorded it first, right? Right, but I actually I wrote it to record myself. So you wanted to record this yourself as a solo artist. Yeah, I was going to, but Smokey did it, but it didn't come out sounding right. So Smokey did it, and then Marvin Gaye recorded it, and Barry Gordy didn't like it, right? Right. But a disc jockey in Chicago loved it, loved it, and he started playing it, and that's how it caught on. But Gladys Knight released her version before Marvin Gaye, and she had a hit. Right. Were you there when any of those artists were recording that song? Yes. Which ones? Marvin can you talk about being there watching Marvin record that song? Yeah, Marvin was such an he was such an artist. He was he was a creator. He was a guy that was a, he was a genius. He would he said, "Well, if you're gonna teach, show me how to sing it, you sing it yourself," because he knew I could sing too. When you heard him sing it, did you realize then that it would become the song, this legendary song? Yeah, I knew it was going to be a it was a hit. Did you like what he did with it? Because he sang in a higher register for this song. Right. He, I loved it because Marvin never really wanted to be a singer. He came to Motown as a drummer. So Marvin Gaye wanted to be a drummer. When was it that he realized he was going to be a singer? When he did the first song, Mr. Sandman. He was singing like Smokey in a real high register. And then he just started to record. But he still played on other people's music, right? Yeah, he played, he played on Dancing in the Street, a lot of different things as a drummer. I want to talk a little bit more about Marvin Gaye. He ended up becoming a producer. Um, he played piano as well. Right. What was he like? He was a good. He was a very, very nice man. Very gentle person. Do you think that being in the music business, the way the business was, is what became very difficult for him? Yes, I think it, because he, you know, 
He he didn't think that people really cared about him because they were cheering for for what he was doing. He said they they're cheering for what I'm doing, not necessarily for who I am. They don't even know know me. So he became a commodity, I suppose. Right. See, Marvin wanted to be a wanted to be an athlete. He played football, right? Yeah, he tried to. He was a big guy. He went out. He went out to the Lions camp. Went out for a pass. And those big linebackers hit him, bam! He left it alone. He said, I'm done with this. Singing might be a little less painful. Right. He used to practice with Mel Farr. He used to go out and throw the football in front of the studio. He'd go out and catch it. And he was, like I said, he was a huge guy. So he could he could take the punishment. But at that day when they went to the training camp, he went up for a pass. Liam Barton said they hit him. And he said, no, I'm done. Coming up next, Barrett Strong talks about the song that the Temptations took to a place he couldn't have imagined. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. Hi, I'm Andalisi, and here is more of my conversation with Motown legend Barrett Strong. So uh, I heard it through the grapevine becomes an absolutely huge hit. Um, right. And you wrote that song. Did you write it with Norman Whitfield or was that just you? Yes. So I want to talk about your relationship with him because the two of you together created some of the most incredible music that we've ever heard. How did it start to become a regular practice for you and Norman Whitfield to work together? We just got along very well and we would talk things out. When you and Norman Whitfield would go to write a song, would you have a Motown artist in mind? Would you go and start to write a song and say, we're going to write this for The Temptations, or we're going to write this for another artist? Or would you just write a song and then try to figure out who would we be better? We write a song, and then we might do it in attempts, then we might change our minds. So like war, we did war, we did it for The Temps, but then Edwin Starr wanted it. And Edwin was such a great performer, so we gave it to Edwin Starr. And it and, became huge. And no one told Evan one day, he said, Evan's the kind of saying this, no one said, no, Barry, he told me, Barry told me, he don't think you can sing. <laughs> I said, <laughs> why'd you tell him that? <laughs> Evan was mad, but we put it on him anyway, and it became a smash. And it's been covered a number of times. I mean, Bruce Springsteen still performs that song regularly. Correct. That's been covered a number of times. Let's talk about Cloud Nine. You wrote that with Norman Whitfield, right? There was a time music was changing, going into the psychedelic area. Were you comfortable with that change when it happened? Yeah. Because it sounds like you didn't miss a beat going. It was challenging. Was it? How come? Because a different groove, different mindset, and a lot of stuff was going. A lot of stuff was going on at the time, and you had to separate yourself from that stuff and look at it at a different angle. Look at it as being a fun time rather than a lot of people looked at it as being a uh, time of drugs and stuff, which it could have been, but we didn't we didn't think of it that way. We thought of it as being a fun time. Dennis Coffey played lead guitar on that song. Talk about working with him. Oh, Dennis is great. One of the greatest guitar players ever lived. 
Let's talk about The Temptations because you wrote a lot of songs. You and Norman Whitfield wrote a lot of songs for those guys. What was it like to watch them take one of your songs and bring it to life? It was amazing because they he had so many ideas themselves. Is there a song that you can think of that they took it to a place you couldn't even have imagined when you wrote it, that you, they made it so much better than you could have ever imagined? Just my imagination. Really? How come? What did they do with that song that's different than what you heard in your head? The harmonies and the way that Eddie, Eddie Kendricks performed it. You can, you can just see what he's talking about. You can picture it. How about I Can't Get Next to You? That was, a, that, that was another one because Al Green did it too. Did you like his version? I loved it. That, I think that sprung Al Green's career. Did you know him? Yes, from Grand, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Did you get along well with him? Yeah. How come he never became a Motown artist, do you think? Well, a lot of people didn't become Motown artists because Motown would only pick the cream of the crop. What was it like watching these artists from the Supremes and the Temptations and the Four Tops and all of these different artists that came through Motown? Were they all really good when they already got there, or did the Motown machine make them really good? The Motown machine made them really good because— you had to be. A, you had to have a certain. We were. We were all kids, and uh, we were desperate. So, we came from good homes. The parents taught us from day one. You know, be true to yourself, be true, true to your master, and be true to the, your art. Don't do it if you don't. If you don't feel it, don't do it. And my impression is is that. Once these artists were signed to Motown, they worked incredibly hard once they got there. You had to, or you wouldn't get a record out. And so let's talk about the recording process. So what I've read, and you can tell me if this is true, is that when a lot of these songs were recorded, they were done in sometimes a couple of takes, and it was all done live with everybody in the room together. Is that typically how things were recorded at Motown? In the beginning, that's the way it was. They had a little room in the stair where you're going on the stairs. We were standing in the booth there while the band is playing and sing with the band. Did it live. This week Monday was recorded live. My sitting there at the piano singing and the band's playing around you. You're in the, you're in the feeling. You can, you're in the moment. So you can feel everything. That sounds like the way it's supposed to be, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like being at a concert. Do you remember any particular recording sessions that... Uh, are unforgettable for you, that will stick with you? Yeah, money. That was grueling. Well, you did it a hundred times. That yeah. sounds grueling to me. After a while, you must have... Why did? It, let me ask you this. Why did it have to be recorded that many times? You make mistakes, and when you're doing it live, we, did, we, we didn't have the ability to overdub and anything like that. So you got to do it, start all over from the scratch. Talk about the Funk Brothers. The greatest ever lived. What was it like to watch them work together? I learned a lot from Earl Van Dyke. I was sitting next to him at the piano and watch him chord and ask questions. What's this? I'm on working. Stop asking me those questions. What chord is that? I learned a lot about music from him. They made it seem effortless when it would come to recording a song because sometimes they would get an entire song done in a day, Right. Right. We we get we could we could get four songs done in one day. Four? Yes. In a day. Yes. See, we everybody talk about the Motown sound. There's no such thing. There's no, there's no Motown sound. 
It's just a combination of things. It's the song first, then it's the music, which is the Funk Brothers, then it's the artist, then it's the producer, then the writer. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Can you talk about writing that song with Norman Whitfield? Yeah, it was like hard to really figure it out because that's about many lives. A lot of a lot of uh, living in the living in the uh, urban area. We have a lot of that going on, you know. It was going on back then a lot. The dad would be going with the lady next door, or the lady next door would be going with the the, the dad, and you know, it just happened all over all over the world. So just like a, a reality. Everybody could relate to that. There was a, a very long version of this song that was done originally, and then there were edits for radio, right? Right. It was 12 minutes. The longest version was 12 minutes. Right. Norman and I, we, we, we were the ones that started that song was going over three minutes. Did you decide we want to do longer songs, or right. did it just happen? You decided. We decided to do it. Like they let it go six, and then edited it down. So editing was different back then than what it is now with the computers. We would chop it up, splice it, and put it together, piece it together. So when you finished Papa Was a Rolling Stone, this incredibly long piece, would a situation be that that would go to Barry Gordy and he would have to— did he, did he approve everything that was done? Not necessarily. They were able to call it quality control. People, we would all sit around and listen to everybody's stuff and pick stuff we think this— Good. And sometimes they'll pick our stuff, and they'll or they'll pick somebody else's, and we'll argue and almost get in a fight up there arguing. My song is better, and all this, you know. And all the producers would produce on the same artists, and whoever got the best song win. So let's talk about that for a second. So who would be in the room for a meeting like that? The quality control room, the writers of the songs, and the producers. So you would be sitting there with Smokey Robinson and Johnny Nor- Bristol, and Norman Whitfield would Norman be there. Whitfield. Would Barry Gordy be there or no? No, he wouldn't come. Billy Jean Brown, she was the head of uh, quality control. So you guys would bring in songs that were already recorded, and then everybody would listen and decide. They would have a master in at RCA, then they'll bring the masters in and play them, and uh, and we we'll listen to them. So what do you think it is? And everybody as well. Well, then uh, she'll ask questions about why this and why that happened in the record, and we'll answer it. And then she'll ask the other people, what do you think of other people? So, I think my record is better than that one. <laughs> what? What? And Norma would, Norma would say, no, and then they'll get, start arguing. Do you remember an argument, a particular ar- argument over a particular song that you fought for? All of them. When you showed up with this long song, Papa Was a Rolling Stone, did they say, what are you guys thinking? It's, a, it's too long. They won't play it on the radio because, you know, the radio only play is three minutes or something. If you go over three minutes, you're in trouble. You're not going to get played. So six minutes, 12 minutes, that was like unheard of. We're sitting here all day listening to this one song. <laughs> But it got played. It was a hit. It got played and it caught on. The long records got caught on then. Then they started playing them because the dance clubs love that. The songs are playing long enough that they don't have to stop dancing. 
In this final segment, Barrett Strong talks about what happened when a Motown artist couldn't make a song work. Hi, I'm Andalisi, and here is the conclusion of my conversation with Barrett Strong. So I interviewed Smokey Robinson once, and he said that before a song was ever recorded, that the writers would all meet and fight it out as to whose songs were going to get recorded, and that everybody would try to get certain artists to record those songs. Do you remember this? Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Well, the best, well, the the, the best man went. You had the hit, the first hit. You get the next one. What were those me- – so everybody would be in there talking about their songs. And would you be able to pick who would record your song? You you pick – because whoever we write the song for, we'll give it to somebody else. We would say we're going to do a song for The Temptation and give it to the originals. Who's ever available at the time? Because we – a lot of times the artists are out of town on tour. And they'll fly in and we'll say – they'll say the Temps are in town. We'll call them and say, come over to the studio. We have an idea for it. We'll all meet at the studio. We show it to them. We record it right then, there. Two weeks later, it's on the street. You would have a song for them. They would show up, and they would have, have not have heard it. They don't know the lyrics. They don't know anything about it. And so they would learn the song, and then they would record it. Right. We teach it to them right then and there. To me, that sounds incredible. Then, was that just the way things were done and— that's the, way, that's, the way, that's the way things were done. When you guys would sit, to, when you would go to write a song, was there ever any kind of a formula, for instance, would the melody be there first or the music first? Or the music is first. I usually start with the bass line. Then I add the other parts to it. And then, then, the, then, get, then get the title. And then, get the, then get the hook. What would, would Norman typically contribute? He's, he, he had great idea. Norman always wanted to be a drummer. He was good with rhythms. Very good with rhythms. He was an excellent, excellent songwriter, too. What is, do you remember a song that you two wrote so quickly that it just was like writing it down? I wish it would rain. Do you remember what that felt like to write a song that quickly? It was very inspirational. Say, we did it this time. Let's do it again. <laughs> he would call me because, like, just, just my imagination. We're going to lose the, the release on uh, the Temps. Mm-hmm. He came to the house early that morning, banging on the door, saying, hey, man, get up. we got to come up with a song for the Temps. They're going to take the release from us. He said, what was a song you showed me last week? I played the, the hook to just my imagination. He said, let's write that one. And we went to this. He said, meet me at the studio in an hour, and we're going to record it. I met him at the studio. We, we did the track. And then the Temps were coming in from New York. And he said, they're going to be in town tonight. We're going to go in the studio and, and put the vocals on. And when I met him with the studio on Davidson, put the vocals on, and it was ready to go. Let's talk about singers for a second. Okay. You and Norman Whitfield would write these amazing songs, but you had to have people bring them to life. Right. Did you have a favorite singer at Motown? Uh, Jimmy Ruffin. How come? I loved his, I always call him, the Nat King Hall of R&B. He was smooth, classy, and his personality, I mean, he was like a gentleman, always willing to do, to do whatever you ask him to do, and he could do it. Did you ever have situations where a singer or an artist would come in 
and they couldn't make the song work? A lot of times. You know what's interesting about that is I think that so many people think that nobody ever had any problems there in Motown, <laughs> like that they just walked in and it was just so easy to do. So they would come in, there were artists that would come in and they would have a hard time with the song. Right. So what would happen then? Would the song go to somebody else? Yes. It never goes to waste. And they walk around mad at each other. I, was, I recorded that song first. And they too bad. You should have did it right. Do you remember a particular song that became a hit for someone else that, was rec- that, was, that somebody else tried to record first? Yeah. A song called Since I Lost You. Who couldn't record it well and who recorded it best? Jimmy Ruffin recorded it best. I think Edwin Starr couldn't do it because he was more of a raunchy singer. Talk about the Supremes, who became absolute superstars. They came in the studio, and Donna Ross, she was, she was a star. First day she walked in the door, Donna Ross could eat two big boys, as skinny as she was. <laughs> <laughs> She said that she was Barry Gordy's secretary, but she didn't know anything about being a secretary. I believe that. She just had the talent, and she just had the, the, the desire to do it and the strong personality. So people have said in the past that um, artists would come to Detroit because they thought there was something in the water here or they thought that there was some special powers at Motown that if they recorded there, they would have a hit. Did you see people coming from all over the place trying to get into Motown to record? Yeah, all the time. I mean, when I met Gladys Knight, there were little kids in Atlanta singing on the show. And uh, when I got back to Detroit, I was I was on tour. She was here, and Tammy Terrell, the same thing. And they came here and became stars, big stars. But a lot of people, most people, that would never have happened for them. No. Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye, that was like a match made in heaven. Right. Marvin had recorded with Kim Weston. He had recorded with uh, Diana Ross, uh, Valerie Simpson. She was responsible for a lot of that stuff because she wrote a lot of the songs. I met Tammy in a bus station in, in New York City. I was on my way back to Philadelphia taking a Greyhound bus. She was she was on the bus, and I talked to her. She said, "My name is Tammy Montgomery." She was singing with James Brown, James Brown's band at the time. And then she met Marvin, and they became good friends. So then they started singing together, and it became a phenomenon. Is there anybody that you wish you would have been able to work with that you didn't? Yeah, I loved the Four Tops. How come you never worked with them? Because they were working with Holland and Doja Holland. We didn't double-cross each other like that. Was that a sort of unwritten rule? Well, sort of, because it's like whoever got the hits before keep working with the same artists until they run out of songs. So Norman and I were going. We had the temptation. We're going on a different direction. So you would have liked to have written for the Four Tops. Yeah, I love Levi, Levi Stubbs. Talk about Holland Dozier Holland. Did you like those guys? Yeah. Brian Holland and I were like brothers. Did you guys ever want to work together? Not really. I, I didn't really know because we were doing two different types of types, types of. I was a funk brother. I was a funk funkster. I didn't. I didn't like the the four four beat. I wasn't wasn't into that too too much. 
Everything else. Chump, 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 chump. I wasn't into that. I was more into the funk and stuff. Two different worlds, right? Two different worlds. So when you listen to music today, what are your thoughts? I think music today is, is great. It has grown a lot. Especially my partner, Eliza Nils, the direction she's going, she's taking it another way. And that's very good for the, for the industry. What do you think about all the technology changes that have come in the last 50 years when it comes to recording music and how we get music? I like the old way better. The new stuff is a little too crazy. Have you recorded using Pro Tools and computers? Yeah, I like some of it. My son is into that stuff. He works for Apple, so he's into that stuff. He knows all the little tricks and turns. I'll bet he does. So you must have an Apple computer? No, he's got all that stuff. It's all him? Yeah, it's all him. He's a rapper. Do you give him advice on on uh, being a musician? I try to tell him, but I'm old. I'm, I'm too old school. No dad... They don't do it anymore. What does he think about the music that you've written? He loves it. The music of Motown and the songs that you wrote continue to capture the attention of new generations all the time. You know that, right? Right. What do you think about that? I think it's good for them. It's like a a learning experience for them. It's like going to college. They'll learn a new way to do what they're doing, put them together, come up with something different. Was that a fun time for you when you were at Motown? Did you enjoy that time, or was it an awful lot of hard work? It was an awful lot of hard work. It was too much skullduggery, too many games. Within how Motown was run? Yeah, the business side of it. When it comes to the Funk Brothers and a lot of these musicians who played on countless um, songs, they probably didn't get make the money they should have. Is that right? That's right. Uh, they didn't get the recognition. There were songs where they weren't even listed, right? Right. But they were the greatest musicians. They were all jazz musicians. They could play anything, right? Anything. See, a jazz musician, he can play anything with class. That's what they did. Did they have charts written out when it would come time to record with an artist? Pretty much. They they would have the rhythm tracks written out. Not like written out, lick for lick, but I mean the chords... They knew the structure of the song. The structure of the song. And then the singers would, you would teach them the melody and they would have the lyrics and they'd execute the song. Right. If you didn't know anything, they wouldn't work with you. You'd become a big joke. Laugh at you in the studio. Run you out of there. (laughs) Did, (laughs) Did you ever see that happen? Yeah, they would. Man! This guy, I went to New York to record at Atlantic Records. And, uh, and uh, he was talking about, one, two. And the guy said, one, two, what? <laughs> Man, what are you talking about? Get out of here. <laughs> the guy didn't know what he was doing. So you've been in Detroit most of your life. You have seen a lot of things change in this town. Right. Yet Motown is still revered. And the music that you help create is still revered all over the world. How do you feel about that? Does that surprise you? Yes, it does. How come? Because who would who would think that something would last so many years? But you know the reality of it: songs outlive people. 
Do you have people come up to you and tell you about songs that you wrote that are still a part of their life or defined periods of their life? Yes, I don't all the time. Man, I was uh, cheating on my wife when uh, such a song came out. I'm sure people say other things, too. <laughs> okay, all kinds of things. If you didn't become a songwriter and a musician, what do you think you would have done? I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to be an athlete. Did you ever get close to that? I was good at playing street ball. And did you ever go uh, try out for? No, I ran track in school. You were good? I was very good. I, were, I could run like a scolded dog. <laughs> yeah, I could play basketball. I play, I'd go out and play in the alley. We call it alley ball. Yeah, go in New York City. When I go to New York, I would go down, down by Greenwich Village and they have a park down there where those guys could play some basketball, but guys were rough. I played down there with them one day. I said, I'll never do this again. Those guys, boy, you go to shoot the ball, knock it back in your face. Maybe that was God's way of telling you you were supposed to be writing songs. Yeah, I said, man, what kind of basketball is that? You're playing. <laughs> you guys aren't playing basketball. You guys are boxing with the basketball as a glove. <laughs> Guys, those guys were rough, roughest guys I ever seen in my life. And I was a kid; I was scared to even drive down the street. Are there any songs you never get tired of hearing? Mine, yours, <laughs> <laughs> but of course. Oh my goodness, you have been so gracious, Barrett Strong. Happy birthday to you! Thank you, and thank you for all that you've done, for all of the great music that you've helped create. It has defined our lives in so many ways. Thank you for thanking me. So I wish you a happy birthday, and thank you for sharing all of your okay, great stories. You. Anytime. You're welcome. My sincere thanks to Barrett Strong for talking with me. The Essential Conversation series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Andalisi. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>